All right, um, let's go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Pastor Tyler is going to be preaching on uh, sola gratia from just a perfect text for that focus. Focus on the grace of God that's ours through Christ. Um, so Ephesians chapter 2, we'll read verses 1 to 10. If you don't have a Bible, if you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 976. So you can turn there and stand with me in honor of God's word and follow along as I read. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word. <laughs> Amen. You may be seated. Morning, Bethel. So, October 31st of this year marks the 500th anniversary of the start of the Protestant Reformation, the day that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, and unbeknownst to him at the time, began a movement that we still gloriously benefit from today. So if you're new with us, or if you missed last week, we're taking the month of October to celebrate the Reformation and focus on its core principles, referred to as the five solas. So they are sola scriptura, scripture alone, sola gratia, grace alone, sola fide, faith alone, solus Christus, Christ alone, and sola Deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. Last week, Pastor Chris kicked us off by focusing on sola scriptura, scripture alone. So the reformers affirm that scripture alone is our ultimate authority. This was a break from the Roman Catholic Church, which teaches that faith and doctrine, our faith and doctrine comes from three places, scripture, tradition, and the magisterium, the teaching office of the church. This week, we are covering sola gratia, grace alone. Grace meaning the unmerited favor of God. By that, the Reformers meant that we are saved by the grace of God alone in Christ, not by any good works or merit whatsoever. 
This too was in conflict with the Roman Catholic Church, which teaches that sinners ultimately are accepted before God based on a combination of divine grace and human merit. Before we go any further, though, I want to take a minute to recommend two books to you. One is The Unfinished Reformation, What Unites and Divides Catholics and Protestants After 500 Years. It's by Greg Allison. He's a professor that I had in seminary. Really, really like him. And Chris Castaldo. So we're going to be talking a lot about Roman Catholicism in this series. And as we do, we want to be sure to explain the Roman Catholic faith with charity. And we want to be sure to explain the Roman Catholic faith with accuracy. And this book is incredibly helpful toward those ends. I'm actually going to quote from it a few times today. And I would highly recommend it to any of you who are interested in learning more about Roman Catholicism and where we as Protestants agree and disagree with Roman Catholics. Second book is The Freedom Movement by Michael Reeves. So we've uh, been giving this book away. We gave it away in preparation for the series, and we still have a few copies left at the Welcome Center at the desk. If, if you haven't received one, uh, I would encourage you to grab one after the service. But in this book, Michael Reeves says that the Reformation is the story of the, quote, discovery of stunningly happy news, news that would transform millions of lives and change the world. And he begins with Martin Luther. Luther was pursuing a career as a lawyer, but one day he was providentially caught in a thunderstorm, and he made a vow to St. Anne to become a monk in exchange for deliverance. Well, he made it out alive, and he followed through on his vow. Reeves explains it like this, quote, Luther's deepest fear was dying and having to stand before God his judge. But becoming a monk gave him what he saw as a golden opportunity. He could make himself more attractive to God and so hopefully earn his love, and he went for it. Luther himself describes this works righteousness project. Listen to a few quotes from him. I had hoped I might find peace of conscience with fasts, prayer, and the vigils with which I miserably afflicted my body. But the more I sweated it out like this, the less peace and tranquility I knew. I was a good monk, I, and I kept the rules of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear it out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other work. While I was a monk, I no sooner felt assailed by any temptation than I cried out, I am lost. Immediately I had recourse to a thousand methods to stifle the cries of my conscience. I went every day to confession, but that was of no use to me. So what was the problem? Why was Luther so troubled? The Apostle Paul, in Romans 1, verse 17, says, For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Reflecting the theology of his day, Luther saw the righteousness of God as something that he had to earn by his own merit, and he knew that he couldn't do it. The more he tried, the more he fell into despair. He was at the point where he said, 
I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. Thus, I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. So what changed? How did Luther get out from underneath this weight? God opened his eyes to the truth of the gospel. Listen to him explain it. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. So Luther realized by God's grace that righteousness is a gift that can't be earned. It's a passive righteousness, meaning that it is accomplished for us by Jesus through his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his triumphant resurrection, and it is credited to undeserving sinners by a loving, gracious God. And that changed everything for him. In short, and this is something that Michael Reeves points out in this book, he says, quote, Martin Luther had stumbled across something people had not heard of in their day. Sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. (laughs) Did you catch that? Sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. Man, that's good news. It's the good news that it was at the center of the Protestant Reformation, and it's the good news that is on clear, wondrous display in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. So as we work through this passage, we're going to see three things. One, we were dead in trespasses and sins. We deserved wrath. Two, God made us alive together with Christ. We receive by grace salvation. And three, God created us in Christ for good works. So first, dead in sin. Look with me at Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find this on page 976. In verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's not something you're likely to see on a motivational poster anytime soon. It's sadly a message that a lot of churches shy away from teaching, but it is essential that we hear this It is essential that we know this and believe this. Before God saved us, before he sovereignly intervened, we were spiritually dead in our sins. We were separated from him. We, along with every person on this planet, were by nature children of wrath. So how is this so? How did this happen? For that, we have to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and the first man God created, Adam. 
God made Adam without sin and with the capacity to obey him. And in Genesis 2.16 and 17, God gave Adam one prohibition. He said, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Tragically, rather than trust and obey God, Adam rebelled against him and ate of the forbidden tree. And as a result, sin, death, and condemnation entered the world and has plagued all of us, all mankind, ever since. Paul explains this in Romans 5, 12 to 21. There, he contrasts Adam, whose disobedience ushered in sin, death, and condemnation for all mankind, with Jesus, whose obedience secured righteousness for all who trust in him. This is where we get the doctrine of original sin, that because of Adam's fall, because of his sin against God in the Garden of Eden, we are all born in sin and guilt and are rightly subject to the wrath of God. The Reformers and Roman Catholics both affirmed this doctrine in name, but they disagreed over its effects. Listen to this statement in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Although it is proper to each individual, original sin does not have the character of a personal fault in any of Adam's descendants. It is a deprivation of original holiness and justice, but human nature has not been totally corrupted. It is wounded in the natural powers proper to it, subject to ignorance, suffering, and the dominion of death, and inclined to sin. By contrast, the Reformers held that original sin involves total depravity, meaning that we are sinful through and through. No stone has been left unturned and total inability, meaning, as Greg Allison, Greg Allison and Chris Castaldo describe in this book, that, quote, people are incapable of reorienting their basic disposition from self-centeredness to God-centeredness. The devastation of sin is such that they are incapable of desiring salvation, taking the initial steps toward God, cooperating with grace, or doing anything that fundamentally pleases God so as to prompt him to be favorable toward them. So do you see the difference? The Roman Catholic Church holds that original sin negatively affects us in real powerful ways. But the Reformers affirmed what Paul's saying in Ephesians 2, 1-3, that original sin was devastating, that it resulted in spiritual death for all mankind. By nature, we are completely infected with sin, and we are utterly unable to take a positive step toward God. Instead, on our own, we actively run from and rebel against him. We willingly commit sin, but make no mistake, it's not the sin we commit that makes us dead. Rather, we are dead, and because that's true, we commit sin. So like a sick, dying tree, we produce rotten fruit. But it's not the rotten fruit that makes us sick. Rather, our sickness is what results in the rotten fruit. 
And so Paul says in verses 1 and 2, we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. And this manifested itself in three ways. One, we were following the course of this world. I have a friend whose little girl used to say, sin broke the world. She's right. It did. And it devastatingly so. Apart from God's intervening grace, the world blindly flees from the Lord, shaking its fist at him along the way. And we were following the same path. As Paul says in Romans 3, 10 to 12, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Two, we were following Satan, referred to here as the prince, the power of the air, which is the place some people thought evil spirits dwelled, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. So like our ancestor Adam on that fateful, fateful day in the garden, and like everyone not currently trusting in Jesus, we were following the fork-tongued prince of the air away from our holy creator. And finally, this is verse 3, we lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So lest we think anything different, our sin against God in thought, word, and deed was our own, no one else's. We were responsible for what we had done. We were guilty. So sinners by nature and sinners by choice, we, along with every person on this planet, rightly deserved to bear God's wrath, and we were incapable of doing anything to merit his grace, love, and favor. That is really bad news. It's important that we recognize it, though. For one, it's what Scripture affirms. But I'll give you three other reasons why. First, it helps us to see sin for what it is, an absolute affront of the highest order toward the holy, just, righteous, eternal God, and therefore justly deserving of God's eternal white-hot wrath. It is not to be trifled with, but rather it is to be attacked. And so, if you're here and you're trusting in Jesus for the salvation of your sins, let's be sure to be on the attack against sin. Let's be sure to do this personally in the strength that God supplies and in community in the strength that God supplies. Like John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Second, this shows us who we were apart from God's grace in Christ. We'll see this in a minute, but recognizing who we were by nature and who we are by God's grace renders us incapable of boasting, gives us assurance of our right standing with God, enables us to joyfully give God all the glory for what he has done, and empowers godly living. And third, 
This is essential for understanding the gospel. If you don't believe you need saving, if you think that there is anything you can do to earn or merit God's favor, you aren't going to sincerely, humbly, desperately come to Jesus for rescue. Martin Luther makes this point in a book he wrote called The Bondage of the Will. He says, God has surely promised his grace to the humbled, that is, to those who mourn over and despair of themselves. But a man cannot be thoroughly humbled till he realizes that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, counsels, efforts, will, and works, and depends absolutely on the will, counsel, pleasure, and work of another, God alone. For those who know their need for grace, like Martin Luther so many years ago, there is good news to be heard. So we've started with the bad news, verses 1 to 3. Let's look to the good news, verses 4 to 9 in our second point, alive with Christ. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So let's be sure not to miss the impact of what's being said here. Again, in verses 1 to 3, Paul describes our sinful state, and it is not a pretty picture. If those verses were all we had, we would have every right to despair. But in verse 4, and that wonderful, powerful phrase, but God, we were dead in our trespasses, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ, raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Back in chapter 1, verses 19 to 21, Paul prays that the saints in Ephesus would know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now, here in chapter 2, Paul's explaining that we have benefited from that same power God worked in Jesus. Did you see that connection? So just as God mightily raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand far above all rule and power, so he has in great immeasurable power, made us alive with Christ, 
raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, meaning that currently we share in Jesus' dominion. And why did God do all of this? Paul explains that in verse 7, so that in the coming ages, God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So in other words, God saved us so that for all eternity, his grace and kindness toward us in Christ would be on full, wondrous display. How amazing is that? If you are here this morning and you're trusting in Christ, you have, by God's grace, been given the greatest gift you could ever hope to receive. Spiritual resurrection from the dead. Salvation from sin, condemnation, and wrath. You didn't earn or merit that. You couldn't have. You were dead in sin, but God freely and unilaterally gave this gift to you. I once heard a pastor powerfully explain what this salvation looks like. He began by noting a common illustration. You may have heard it. that says sinners are, that it's like sinners are sinking in water. But God, through Christ, has graciously thrown us a life raft. And all that's required for us to be saved is that we swim over to it and grab it, take hold of it, take what's freely given. The pastor then offered this correction. He said, we weren't sinking in water and in need of a life raft. Rather, we were dead on the bottom of the ocean floor, rotting corpses slowly wasting away. But God, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, reached down into the depths and made us live and yanked us to safety. That's the gospel. That's what salvation looks like. So you might ask then at this point, what role does faith play? Where does faith come into all of this then? Well, Paul addresses that in verses 8 and 9. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, this referring to the grace and the faith, is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Even the faith that we express in Christ is itself a gift from God, not our own. If it were our own, if it, were our own it could be said, uh, or it could go toward our own merit. Do you see that? But, sal- but faith itself is God's gift to us. Salvation is a work of God's unilateral, sovereign grace toward undeserving sinners. As Jonathan Edwards once said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. So let's step back at this point and see the bigger picture. We were dead in our sins and trespasses, completely corrupted, unable to turn to God. But here's what God has done for us. He sent Jesus to save his people 
from their sins. Jesus accomplished that. He lived a life of perfect obedience to God. We failed. He never did. He died a sacrificial death on the cross on our behalf. And God raised him from the dead in immeasurable power three days later. And on that basis, through what Christ has accomplished, God shows grace to undeserving rebels like you and me. Not by any good works or merit, but solely by his grace so that no one may boast. God gives us faith to turn away from our trespasses and sins and trust Jesus to save us. And when that occurs, when God saves us, when he gives us faith, he justifies us. He declares us not guilty, but righteous instead. Jesus' perfect righteousness is credited to our behalf. As Paul says in Romans 3, 23 to 24, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Mark read this text this morning. Titus 3, 4 to 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 18 and 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You have been recreated. And this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. For our sake, he made him, it's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. That is the great exchange. Jesus took our sin and has given us his righteousness. We stand in this grace. We stand in this righteousness. This is the joyous truth that Martin Luther discovered by the mercy of God. Sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. Now, how did that stand in contrast to the teaching of the Catholic Church? To put it broadly, Luther and the Reformers affirmed with Scripture that we are saved by grace alone, not by good works or merit whatsoever. The Roman Catholic Church, however, teaches that sinners are ultimately accepted by God based on a combination of divine grace and human merit. So listen to two statements on this from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. God has freely chosen to associate man with the work of his grace. That's a synergistic salvation. We cooperate with God's grace as opposed to what the Reformers held, a monog monergistic salvation. God alone saves. 
Another statement from the Catechism. No one can merit the initial grace of forgiveness and justification at the beginning of conversion. We agree with that. Moved by the Holy Spirit and by charity, we can then merit for ourselves and for others the graces needed for our sanctification, for the increase of grace and charity, and for the attainment of eternal life. To that, the Reformer said, absolutely not. That is not what Scripture teaches. So let's flesh this out a bit. So first off, while there is agreement that merit plays no role in initial forgiveness and justification, it's really important to note that we're dealing with two different definitions of justification here. The Catholic Church defines, incorrectly so, justification as, quote, not only the remission of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the inner ma interior man. So justification and sanctification are conflated. The reformers, though, distinguished between justification and sanctification. Sanctification is that process by which God, by grace, makes us holy. Justification, however, refers to God's declaration that sinners, by grace through faith in Jesus, are not guilty but righteous instead. It's a one-time pronouncement in which God credits Jesus' righteousness to sinners' behalf. Those are radically different definitions. But second, the Catholic Church holds that justification is given through the sacrament of baptism and that it, quote, establishes cooperation between God's grace and man's freedom. So baptism begins that process. This process worked, works itself out through the other sacraments of the Catholic Church, particularly confirmation, the Eucharist or communion, and penance. Um, which are understood as means of grace that help one to remain faithful and ultimately attain eternal life. So listen to Greg Allison and Chris Costaudo describe this in more detail. I'm going to read from them at length here so we can try to wrap our heads around what the Catholic Church teaches. With the process of justification underway through the sacramental system, this baptized person can begin to merit for herself the graces needed to attain eternal life. As already mentioned, Catholics believe this is accomplished by receiving the Eucharist and by living a virtuous life. When she commits a mortal sin, a serious transgression by which she falls away from God and loses, loses saving grace, she must observe the sacrament of penance. She participates by expressing contrition, genuine sorrow over her sin, and confession, recounting her mortal sins to a priest. Upon hearing the confession, the priest forgives, pronounces absolution, in the name of Jesus, and determines the manner of satisfaction or penance. Reparation for sin through such activities as prayer and offering, works of mercy, service, or self-denial. Through this process, she who has fallen away from salvation experiences restoration to grace and thus a fresh justification and thus to friendship with God. If this Catholic believer successfully reaches the end of her life in a state of grace, that is, she is not guilty of a mortal sin, 
she will ultimately be saved. However, it is likely the case that she must first spend a period of time in purgatory, an experience of suffering that involves punishment. Purgatory, as the term suggests, is an experience that purges or purifies the soul, conforming her to the holiness of God. When she has passed through this experience, she is finally prepared to enter the presence of the one who abides in unapproachable light. This concludes the process of salvation, having originated in her baptism, having grown throughout her faithful life, and having been finally perfected in the divine presence. So do you see the difference in what the, what the Reformers affirmed and what the Catholic Church teaches? Allison and Castaldo boil it down to this. Catholic theology locates the reason for one's ultimate acceptance not simply in one's righteous status, as Protestants do, on account of one's union with Christ, but in the renovation of one's soul by the Holy Spirit, that is, in, in sanctification in a state of grace. So what difference does sola gratia make? What's the big deal? I think we can say four things. One, it makes an eternal difference. If you are trusting in your good works to save you, you haven't yet believed the gospel. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. This all is a gift. You can't earn it or merit it, and if you try, you will always fail. But the good news is that God freely offers salvation. So if you are here this morning and if you aren't a Christian, leave your moralistic effort behind and trust in Christ alone to save you and make you new. He will. And this is not to say that Roman Catholics cannot be genuinely Christians. They can. But it is to say that if a Roman Catholic is a genuine Christian, they are so by God's grace in spite of the teaching of the Catholic Church. So, if you're trusting in your works to save you, abandon, abandon that self-effort and come to Jesus with empty hands and he will save you. That is good news to undeserving sinners who know their need for grace. Two, this produces humility, thankfulness, and joy. If you're trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, God has saved you. You were dead in your sins, but he made you alive. And by grace through faith, he has counted Christ's righteousness as yours. So humility, you didn't earn this. God gave this to you. Thankfulness, you were dead, and God resurrected you. Joy, you deserve wrath, but God has given you grace. Wow, we have every reason to walk out these doors this morning with our hands raised, praising God for what he has done. And there's more. This brings three, freedom and assurance. This happened for Martin Luther. He was a spiritual train wreck before God intervened in his life. But when God showed up, 
when God showed him that salvation is by grace, that it's a gift, he said, I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise, paradise itself through open gates. This happened too for Chris Costaldo, the co-author of this book. He's a former Catholic, and he described life in the Roman Catholic Church this way. When you spend your entire religious life saying, mia culpa, mia culpa, mia maxima culpa, Latin for my fault, my fault, my most grievous fault, with a universe of religious stipulations waiting to be violated, everything from dietary regulations to holy days of obligation, it is not long before guilt grows into unmanageable proportions. It's like an iron bear trap gripping your conscience. You either sever your conscience or remain captive to it. The gospel of grace frees us from that because your good deeds don't speak for you. Christ's righteousness does. You are accepted before God not on the basis of what you have done or will do, but on the basis of what Jesus did. I didn't grow up Roman Catholic, but I know this to be true. Before God saved me, I was plagued by sin and doubt. I recited the sinner's prayer on numerous occasions. Man, I wore that thing out. I was even baptized a couple times, but none of it took. I was trying to save myself. I didn't understand the gospel. But when God saved me, Freedom came. My good deeds aren't contributing in any way to my salvation. Christ is my righteousness. Do you see how that brings assurance too? If our ultimate acceptance before God is based in any way on merit, you can never truly be sure where you stand. But if it's based on Christ's righteousness credited to your behalf by grace through faith, you can have certainty. Jesus has been raised and seated with God, and so have you. That brings us to our last point, verse 10 of Ephesians 2. Created in Christ for good works. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Sola gratia, Grace alone is not at odds with good works. It is just opposed to the belief that works of any kind merit or contribute to salvation. So how then do good works function? They are the fruit of our right standing before God. We were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. And that deadness bore bad fruit. Now that God has saved us by grace through faith apart from good works, he calls us to walk in those good works he's prepared. So our righteous standing in Christ bears good fruit. In the words of John Calvin, it is therefore faith alone that justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. Even here, we aren't left to our own efforts. God didn't create us in Christ and then leave us on our own devices. No, we are God's workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. From beginning to end, God has given us everything that we need. He is good and gracious. He is a loving Father. So I think we can respond to this in at least three ways. One, we should be zealous in prayer. God sovereignly and in great power raises sinners from the dead and makes them alive with Christ. Therefore, I can ask him to save people and overcome their stubborn rebellion against him. Do you have someone in your life who's not a Christian, who you desperately want to see come to know Christ, you can't save that person. That person can't save that person. Only God can do that. So let's pray and let's God, let's pray and let's ask God to save our unsaved friends and family members and coworkers and neighbors and classmates. Two, we should be zealous in evangelism because it's God who saves, not me. And because I have really good news to share, I can confidently, freely, and joyfully share the good news of the gospel with those who don't know Jesus. Don't you want to see God raise people from the dead? Don't we want to see God raise people from the dead? I hope that we do. He can do that. He's done that for me. If you're a Christian, he's done that for you. So let's pray and let's ask him to save people. And let's get out and let's get the good news of the gospel to those who don't know Christ. And three, we should be zealous in obedience in general. We have all the reason in the world to obey the Lord. He has saved us by grace. We aren't working to earn his favor. We already have it. And because we already have it, we are free to live for Christ. We are free to walk in good works. This is how the Apostle Paul argues. In Ephesians itself, go home later today and look at the structure of this letter. The first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul takes the, the first three chapters there to remind the saints who they are in Christ. And then the last three chapters, after he's done that, he explains to them how they should live. Who we are motivates how we live. So we have every reason to be zealous in obedience. The Christian life is all of grace from beginning to end. In his biography of Martin Luther, Stephen Nichols says this of Luther's death. Luther's struggles had finally been resolved. The God who at one time struck terror to his very soul by just the mere thought of him was now viewed as welcoming him with arms wide open. Those gathered by Luther's deathbed recorded his final words. Just before he died, he prayed, I thank you, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you have revealed your dear Son to me, in whom I have believed, in whom I have preached, confessed, and trusted. Then he offered his last sermon, which consisted of reciting John 3.16 and Psalm 68.20. The latter reads, Our God is a God of salvation, and to God, the Lord, belongs escape from death. What changed for Luther? 
God showed him that truth that's essential to Christianity, that's at its core. Sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for the grace that you have showed us in Christ. Thank you that while we were dead in sin, you made us alive with Christ and raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You have done great things. Father, I pray that you would fill us up with joy at what you have done for us in Jesus, that you would give us confidence of our right standing before you based on Jesus' righteousness, that you would give us a zeal for obedience and evangelism and prayer. Please, please give us grace. Please work in us powerfully by your Spirit for our good, for the good of the city, and for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.